0: You are listening to Artistic Finance, Show 131. Today's show is a broadcast of the Financial Independence Book Club, brought to you in collaboration with Utopia Dreamscape, which is Amy Deluxe's creative hub. We discuss A Cat's Guide to Money by Lillian Carabake with live audience participation. We discuss bad debt versus good debt, household debt in the USA versus the UK. A debit card that can be used to build credit. Treating yourself as a bill to pay off certain items and to save. For credit scores, keeping the utilization under 1%. A saver's credit for taxpayers making less than $60,000 using Vita. Being added as an authorized user of someone with good credit in order to build your own credit. Making money babies that will make more money babies for you keeping medical debt with the original provider to avoid collection agencies, and keeping medical debt with the original provider to avoid collection agencies. I want to thank Matt Cooper, our guest on episode 128. He provided our attendance prizes from Spark Lighting. I'll be announcing those winners at the end of the show. And now, without further ado, let's get to the show.
1: you're listening to artistic finance podcast where your host ethan steimel interviews successful artists leaders and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth
0: welcome everyone to the very first financial independence book club all instigated by amy deluxe right there if you can find her image Um, So thank you, Amy, for organizing this and setting us up for a whole year of this. Just a big thing about this specific meeting is that we actually have the author of the book, Lillian Karabake, who's here. And we're just super excited to have Lillian. So this is like a special book club meeting. So I'm actually going to let Amy handle most of this discussion and talk about the book and introduce our presenter. Amy, if you want to take it away.
1: Thank you so much. We're so excited to bring the premiere, uh, Financial Independence Book Club show, party, podcast. Uh, We're excited to bring it to you live with our live audience today and rebroadcasting on Artistic Finance as well as Utopia Dreamscape. Um, I just wanted to go over a little bit about the vision and mission for the Financial Independence Book Club. Our vision is financial literacy primarily for creatives. There is a big gap between uh, finance and the creative arts. And so we really wanna bridge that gap by bringing uh, financial education into into the picture and making it accessible for everyone. And that brings us to our mission, which is to create a transparent forum and inclusive community to propel arts workers into financial security. This is very accessible. I know it's very uh, mystifying in the beginning, but we're gonna help you through it with that learning from these books and discussions uh, so that it becomes accessible for everyone. And we also have prizes. So we're going to be doing This broadcast monthly uh, with a new book for every month, and we will have prizes for our audience to give away. So for this month, we've got some prizes from Spark Lighting uh, by Matt Cooper in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a travel coffee mug, a t-shirt, and a pumpkin stress ball. So that is very exciting. And then with that, I want to hand it off to our first premiere. Financial Independence Book Club presenter, Claudia Hodgson of Theater fits She's going to walk us through her summary and takeaway for the book, A Cat's Guide to Money uh, by Lillian Caravake. So take it away, Claudia.
2: Thank you. And I'm super excited to be the first presenter on here. And what a fantastic book to start off with. And for those of you who don't know, I am cat obsessed Absolutely love cats. I've got one at my mom's house. I love them. Also, when I was looking to buy the book, I could not find a hard copy. All the places that shipped to the UK, they were sold out. So I was like, okay, this must be a really good book. So I, I had high expectations and the expectations were met and exceeded. So a little bit of a background on kind of where I'm at with finances. So I, I run my own business. I'm an online health and fitness coach. What I have found is I've kind of fallen into the uh, arena where finances are spoken at a really high level. So what I mean is, you know, people are talking about making like 20, 30, 60 grand a month in kind of my field where where I am. And that feels very overwhelming because I'm I'm nowhere near there. Um, And a lot of the people I kind of listen to in terms of podcasts and learning about how to run a business they're all these multimillionaires. So, you know, I've got high expectations, but at the same time, I'm still at the start of my journey. So when you're comparing finances, it feels like or what it did feel like was, I'm at the bottom, I'm at the start, I can't afford to save or put any money aside. So I need to get to a place where I'm earning lots and lots of money before I can even think about that. And that was the biggest takeaway point from reading this book was that you don't have to be super wealthy, earning lots of money to actually start building your own wealth. And in the book, when it was broken down in terms of kind of what phases you should be focusing on, that kind of took the overwhelm of trying to save money. Um, So I I really liked that. I love the fact that there, there was a big emphasis on There's no right or wrong in terms of what your financial goal should be. And you should also focus on the values that you have, because I'm sure lots of people grow up where they're told they shouldn't spend this amount of money on clothes, or you should try and find the cheapest option for a gym membership. And you're kind of fed in these beliefs that you shouldn't spend a lot of money on something. I don't know, especially coming from my family, you know, we weren't super wealthy, but we weren't poor either. It was a very normal working class background, but it was very much a case of, oh, you shouldn't spend money on buying a coffee out. You shouldn't really go out to eat. You can eat at home. It's a lot cheaper. My kind of growing up was I shouldn't be spending money on that. But when I did, I would have this guilt. You know, when people think about budgeting and about saving Those are the first things you think you shouldn't do, and it comes from you know your childhood beliefs. So it was really nice to read the book, and I think it was on the first page where it was like you don't have to give up your latte to actually save money. So I really like the fact there's a really big emphasis on what your values are, what you do want to spend money on, Um, and if you can make it fit your budget, there's nothing wrong with it. The next thing was. There was a story in the book which I found really interesting with a guy called Michael. and he was the guy who had never been in debt and he wanted to buy a place with his partner, But because he didn't have that debt, he found it quite difficult to actually borrow money. And this was something I've never thought about. And as I was reading it, i I kind of had these questions about whether debt is a good thing or whether it's a bad thing because we're always, taught that, or we're always taught that you shouldn't have debt you shouldn't max out your credit card and you should make minimum payments and you should avoid it as much as possible but then when this guy Michael did that he was struggling to borrow money so it, it kind of got me thinking about kind of good debt and bad debt so I, I don't really have like a rounding up point to that but it just kind of opened up that conversation for me We try so hard to not get into debt, but actually when you need it in the future, whether that is to borrow a loan for something or to buy a place, it's actually quite valuable. So I'd be interested to hear anyone's experience with that, whether they found themselves being able to borrow money because they had proven that they could go into debt and pay it back, or whether they had a similar story to Michael, where because he hadn't had any Recorded whether they they struggled as well. So I don't know if you want to do that I'm, now.
3: I'm happy to talk about that too because I think it's really easy to get into generalizations when it comes to particularly credit scores. Um, But there's two things that I should note. One, credit scores are different in the UK than they are in the US. So they're tied to your voter registration in the UK, and that is a little different than how they are in the US. In the US, they only exist as soon as you open an account with a an agency. So you can have a credit score in the UK without borrowing money, um, whereas here it is not possible, but it's also impossible to really build up a credit score in the UK if you are not a citizen, which makes it really, really challenging for immigrants Um so there's there's differences to both systems um although i would say the uk is the closest to the u.s credit system of any of the other countries um so i that's like a just a general note uh like i couldn't i don't think anybody wants to talk about the specifics all day but i mean i'm always happy to um but uh i think that one of the you were saying, like, is debt a good or a bad thing? And the thing I always want to emphasize to people because I think a lot of people have a lot of shame and guilt around debt, especially if you're in the u s. and you had to borrow for school because most people do have to borrow for school in the u s. And um, unless you happen to come from a family with a ton of generational wealth or you manage to luck out as far as the school that you went to and your household income and your ability to get aid. um the like, I think there's a lot of stigma and shame around debt where people view their own worth as reflective of what kind of debt they have or they feel like it was a a choice that they made that reflects on their character here's the thing. You probably made the best decision you could at the time when you took out debt with the information and resources you had available at the time. And like your past self can't feel it. Like the 18 year old that took out a bunch of student loans can't feel it when you get mad at them. Um, And the best, all you can do is like work forward going forward. The The thing about debt is that it is, I think there's a lot of cultural stigma around it, but it's really just a tool. It doesn't mean that it's good and it doesn't mean it's bad. There are people that use it to an excess and there are people that use it, that avoid using it, that it can have repercussions for them. Um, One of the really frustrating things about credit scores, particularly in the U.S., is that even if you are, quote unquote, good with money, even if you make very smart decisions where you never borrow for anything and you so you are invisible to the credit bureaus, Credit scores are used to evaluate your credit worthiness for a bunch of non-borrowing activities. So they're used for you just renting apartments in the U.S. They're used to uh, determine your how much you pay on your auto uh, insurance and your homeowner's insurance and your renter's insurance. So, you know, they can um, be used to determine if you can get um, uh, medical procedures, um, because if you get uh, medical procedures like gender affirming surgery, then your credit score will often be checked. Uh, They can be used for whether or not you can borrow, you know, you can rent a car and you can get a contract cell phone. And so there's a lot of folks that That think that the credit score is an indication of their financial worth, but it's it's not meant it's not there to serve you. It is there to serve the companies that borrow money. It was originally established with the idea that it used to be the way that you borrowed money was that you would go out to the bank down the street and the banker down the street would be like, hmm, do I think you're worth lending money to? And you know what that ended up being? Only white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males would get lent any money. Money because they could use any information they could get about you. They could go down and find out if you paid your bar tab. They could find out if you were a member of the right church or country club. And what the uh, Equal Credit Opportunity Act did in the 1970s was they made it available based uh, just solely on your ability to repay debt. It was this algorithmic scale that does not include your race ethnicity gender marital status any of this information is excluded from it so originally it was meant to be a civil rights uh action that we have credit scores and the way that we determine them unfortunately the algorithms that determine them are built by humans and they still have a lot of implicit bias in them um and they're used for far more than lending activities so um i think debt can be helpful towards building the score but remember that that score the only aim is to make yourself look more credit worthy to the companies that want to lend you money like it's it's not there it doesn't it's not linked to your own value as a human but it can be a useful tool having a good credit score that's my um my little soapbox about um credit agencies
1: (laughs) but i would love to hear people's experience too as well yeah, I love that. Uh, I love that, Lillian. And and Claudia, I thought it was interesting when you were asking about that, um, because you were kind of saying things like you try not to get into debt and debt is bad. And but in the US, you know, it is a little different where debt is almost a way of life. Nobody likes it. But we kind of at this stage expect that it is a part of, of, of what we do in order to um, just move forward. We take out auto loans, uh, we take out you know, credit cards to pay for vacations and things like that. Uh, So it is it's pretty common here to have debt, even though nobody really likes it. But people carry balances very, very frequently, I think.
3: I would actually the UK technically has higher household indebtedness as a percentage of um, salary than the
2: US does. Really?
3: Yeah, people borrow against their homes quite a lot in the UK, um, and that is one of the big and the cost of living crisis has actually really um, condensed it. But even though there is less access to the credit in the UK, the UK actually has a higher percentage of household debt. Fun facts from your oh, yeah. local <laughs> economist. <laughs> um, I, I mean, one of I think one of the big differences here in the US is that um, we. There's this very brief period that I think a lot of people fall in the demographic category of where they only we were told that we needed to go to school to get a good job but the rapid inflation of the cost of education meant that for most people, the access to education meant borrowing an amount of debt that wasn't in any way tied to your like, ability to repay it. Um, and you know, we've got these really rapidly ballooning student loans. And I think that that um, has perpetuated a lot of the other kinds of debt. I don't, I don't know how intellectually people want to talk about this, because I don't know how much we want to hammer home on the student loan crisis in the US. But we're waiting to find out if the Supreme Court lets Biden forgive <laughs> some of it.
2: It's similar to what you're saying, how, you know, when, when you're growing up, you're taught to go to school, go to college, get a good job. Um, but then, you know, if if you go that route and then you then want to buy a property, but you don't have that score or you, you haven't got anything to prove that you're able to pay it back, then how do you get around that? So that, that's just something I found quite interesting. It's almost like the system works against you.
3: It's meant to serve the lenders. <laughs> it's not meant to serve you. <laughs> It's for it's made by them for them. And so I think that's I think there's a lot of people that tie their own financial wellness up in this score that is just meant to say, are you a good risk to lenders? Um, Because that's all it is. It's just it's just are you a good risk? Um, And it's built with their data and it's built for them. So it's like important to remember that. Um, I think that sometimes people, when they learn about kind of the underlying mechanisms of credit score or if they end up in a bad situation where they like have no credit score or they're invisible to credit scores they uh, i think people sometimes use it as an excuse to not work on the rest of their financial wellness because they're like well I don't want to participate in this system but it is it is perfectly possible to be very financially well and not engage in in the screw aroundery of the uh, credit scoring system because you can finance a house theoretically doing what's called manual underwriting. You'll likely pay like slightly more origination fees because, th- but essentially they'll go through and look at all your documents. Um, there's also more and more mechanisms, especially in the U.S. now, To report the kinds of payments that aren't debt to help you build your credit score. Um, there's a lot of services that will allow you to pay your, like to report your rent, paying your rent and paying your utilities and actually get that to report positive information to the credit bureaus. So if you are in the kind of situation where you're invisible to the credit bureaus because you haven't borrowed money, um, there are a number of sneaky ways to improve your credit score. It's just a game that you have to decide you need to play. So if you do need to borrow for, for example, a house which is the common thing that a lot of people have a goal because few of us are able to do it in cash um then there are ways to improve your credit score and that's the other thing if you are if you are starting from zero in the credit system and you want to buy a house you really only need about a year to improve your credit score if you're really focused on it Um, So don't view it as the be all end all. Um, Even if you declare bankruptcy in the United States, which is obviously a huge hit to your credit, because you can't declare bankruptcy again for seven years, um, that means that you're actually fairly attractive to lenders because they know that their debt's going to have to be repaid for the next seven years. So if you've ever known anybody to file for personal bankruptcy in the US, the second that that is confirmed and on public record, they start getting more and more offers of credit cards, which is i mean speaks to something about us as a country but as soon as they do that they're like hmm yes this person can't get rid of their debt now so um yeah that is fun i don't know how much people want to talk about debt
1: but (laughs) i'm actually i'm actually curious about the um the credit score conversation because even though we usually think of it as these big ticket items to buy a house or things like that um you know you mentioned that sometimes depending on where you live it can ding uh, what you have to pay for your rental property. I know that when I had bad credit, um, I I had to pay deposits for just to get my utilities turned on. And so Correct. normally when you have a, yeah. So when you have a lower credit score, um, it still can affect you in just in that you get penalties, financial penit- penalties um, that you have to pay more. So I, there are ways to rehab your credit score. And I wonder if you want to go a little bit into that because uh, there is a, a little bit of a process involved, but Um, It can be done. And at the same time, as someone who's repaired my credit, it's still the algorithm. You know, I was like, oh, okay, I'm arbitrarily going to just try to hit 800, even though I know after like 720, it doesn't really change anything. But just for my own financial goals, I wanted to do that. I have had very solid credit for uh, seven or eight years now and every time I hit 800 I've I've gone up to 802 805 and then arbitrarily within a a few weeks it's like it's 796 now and nothing has changed so there is a little bit of you know uh, there's nothing you can do about it at the same time there are concrete steps that you can take to improve it in a short time.
3: Very quickly, I do want to mention the bouncing around just so people have some context, because a lot of people don't understand that there's nothing static about your credit score. Um, So your credit score is a snapshot at time at any given time. So if you are trying to be very strategic and get over a line, one of the things is to understand what day that information is being reported to the credit bureaus. Because if you have money out on credit cards, like even if you pay off your credit cards every single month and you don't carry a balance, the, the amount amount that you are carrying on that card um, before you pay it off is reported as your utilization um, statistic to the credit bureaus. And because of that, um, sometimes paying off your credit balance way, way before your due date, if you know what the date that that information gets reported, to the credit bureaus can shift your score by a couple points. Um, So if you're right on that line, I, I understand your goal of getting to 800, but it is not actually important, but I understand. Um, but yeah, you know, that it can be annoying to watch it bounce around if that's been a goal for a long time. But a lot of people don't understand that it is just a snapshot in time. And so actually knowing those dates and when they pull, and, um, you know, we recommend if people are right on the line and they're looking to buy a house, we actually recommend that they don't charge anything on any of their cards. Like they keep them at zero for three months prior to when the poll comes. Um, so they get three billing periods where they've got zero percent utilization as your card, because how much is on the card as a percentage of your um, overall credit limit is reported as your utilization. The ideal utilization is uh technically under 30%, but they reward you a lot more if it's under 1%. So my utilization is always under one percent, but that's because I'm very into credit card hacking as a hobby. So I have like an absurd amount because I, you know, I pay off my balances every month, but I like to get the points. So I have like quite a strategy for it. Um, But that's because I have a huge credit limit and I only put like my expenses on it. Um, As far as rehabbing your credit, there's a bunch of different ways. One of the big things is to actually get a full understanding of what is on your credit report. So if you're in the US, you can go to annualcreditreport.com. It used to be that you could get one from each bureau each year, but right now, because of the pandemic, you can get it every day. You can literally pull a free version of your credit report every day. Um, I do recommend going to annualcreditreport.com because that is the only website that is free by the government. Um, you if you search I I need a free credit report online, you'll find lots of scammy websites. Uh, the other thing to know about this, if you've never pulled your credit report before, is that they're gonna ask you a trick question when you try to pull your report. So they'll ask you a question like have you ever lived at this address which if you've moved around as much as me i'm always like oh god oh god which address like i don't know did i live on hackberry lane um but they're also going to ask you a trick question and this is where a lot of people get really like muffed up by trying to pull their credit report um it'll ask you something like Let's say you were born in 1990 and it'll ask you when we see you had a mortgage with First National Bank that you took out in 1992. And what like what you know, who was this with or what address was this for or something? And you'll be like, wait, did I take out a mortgage when I was two years old? The answer is, no, the, one of those answers will be none of the above, so select that. So if you get stuck on a question that seems weird, the it's usually a trick question. Um, so I always like to give that note to people. But the first thing is to understand what is on your credit report. There are three main bureaus for credit reports, and each of them are gonna get different information. Um, and the reason they have different information is that they have relationships with different credit um, lenders for what kind of information they get reported to it. So like, for example, if you apply for a Chase card um, with Chase as the bank, it's they're going to pull your credit report from Equifax. And the reason they're going to pull it from Equifax is that they have a relationship with Equifax. So that pull is going to be on your Equifax report, but it might not be on your TransUnion report. It's not super important to know this kind of stuff but just know that you should pull all three bureau's credit reports because they're not going to look identical um so once you are like in that state of trying to rehab your credit report it's very helpful to pull all of them and then see what some of that negative information is it can be I am trained on reading credit reports like I have licenses in this stuff and I will tell you it is still really tough to understand the actual original credit reports they don't have a a big score at the top, like you expect them to have. They're just a list of information about you that excludes those very important things, race, religion, marital status, all of those things that have to be excluded under the Equal um, Credit Opportunity Act. So- When you pull the report, you can get an idea if you see that you have any bad information on there. You know, maybe you had a bankruptcy, maybe you had what's called a charge off, which is essentially when a credit card or any other kind of um, account that you have decides that they've given up on getting money out of you. And then it will be what's called a charge off. And that's very negative information on your credit report. Um, Once you look that up, um, I will also say medical information can still end up on there, like your medical debt. But as of last year, it will now not negatively end up on your credit report, but that's new last year. Um, So if you do have medical debt, the biggest goal is to make sure it stays with whatever the original provider it is, because sometimes if they go to a third-party collection, it will no longer fall under that medical debt won't show up on your credit report. Whenever they can screw you with medical debt, they will just assume that they're out to screw you. So, but if you can leave it with a hospital, one of the things that I see people do, they freak out, they're really stressed because the hospital's like, you owe us $3,000. And they're like, oh crap, what do I do? What do I do about this? And they just put it on a credit card when they don't have a plan to pay off that credit card. Um, But you've now converted that medical debt into credit card debt. And that will negatively affect affect your credit score even under the new laws because they don't know that that's credit okay so that's kind of the basics understand what's wrong um if you still have an active account that like you didn't know about like i don't know i know people that have blockbuster charges show up on their account from like movies they forgot to return eight years ago um to the you know three last blockbusters or whatever. Um, so if you have something that you didn't know was on there, one, identify if it's um, wrong information. Every single person that interacts with a U.S. banking system assistant, assistant has a credit report. That means they make a lot of mistakes. You know how many Mario Rodriguez there are in the world? Like there are so many people with the same name. Um, there's a lot of people with the same name who have lived at the same address. Um, so first of all, Make sure that it's actually you. This is actually your debt. Um, if there is, if you do detect anything fraudulent, you can write to the credit bureau, request more information, ask for it to be um taken off. That is part of your rights as someone interacting with the credit bureaus under law. Um, you can dispute any incorrect information. Um I, and then the last thing to do once you've like kind of determined where they are, if you've got a debt that you know is there, but is like negatively impacting your credit report, especially accountant in a collection, negotiate with the lender. You can ask lenders to take bad information off your credit report. You can offer them settlements. You can offer them all sorts of things to take information off your credit report. It is within your, um, your ability to do that. Now, if the, the last piece is not like, it's not a negotiation thing. It it's just that you're kind of newer to the credit world, and you don't have. You just need to build up your score. There's a couple things that you can do, and I highly recommend these for people. Even if you do have bad information, try to do also the positive stuff on the side. Um, one of them is get it becoming an authorized user of someone's oldest card that is of has a very good credit score and a very good um, rating. Uh, so if you've got an auntie, a friend a spouse who has an excellent credit rating, they can make you an authorized user and you will inherit the history of that card. So you only want a card where they've paid on time every time and you want it to be old and you want it to have a, usually a pretty high credit limit. But that will add positive information to your report. You don't have to spend on it. You're not going to go out and like use their being an authorized user to like ring up bills on it. They don't even have to give you the physical card. Um, but if you don't have anybody in your life, because a lot of us don't have access to someone that has a great credit score, especially if we grew up in poverty, you can also do what's called trade lines, which is people like me that have access to a lot of really good Good credit we offer for a small fee, essentially the ability to be added as an authorized user on our card. You won't get the card. You can't borrow on it, but it will add positive information to your report. That's kind of like the fast track to get good uh, positive history added. Um, the next way is just try to get credit for things you're already doing. So if you're already paying your rent on time, every single month, you're already paying your utilities on time, every single month. There are a bunch of services now that either you're pro- If you work, if you, rent from a big property management company, they might offer it as a perk. Now it's becoming more and more common where they will now not just report negative information, but every month they will say, yes, this person paid their, their rent on time every single month. And that means you're going to add like a positive account to it. Um, don't do this though. If you are in a situation where you are not paying on time every single month um, for your rent, your utilities, any of those bills, because then that's going to be another negative thing that otherwise wouldn't have touched your credit report, right? Um, And then uh, kind of one of the last, I mean, there are a lot of ways to strategize around this, but one of the last ones I really recommend for people is... um, look, if you, especially if you don't have access to applying for a credit card, like your score is really low or doesn't exist, um, credit builder cards are really great. Credit unions all have to offer these in the U.S. because they have like a requirement to provide certain services to the community as a credit union. Um, And that's usually where you would start. But there's actually a lot of online banks that do these now, too, if you don't have access to a credit union. And essentially what they are is a secured card. So you would put a small amount in a bank account with that bank. And then that would be used as your credit limit, but every month they would record. So you'd put like, let's say a hundred or $200 in a account with that bank. And then every single month um, you would, you know, put Netflix on it pay off Netflix with money out of a different account. It's not a debit card. And they would report that as positive history. After about six months to a year, you will probably have enough positive information on your report to apply for an unsecured card. Um, and that is the entire goal of those cards. Um, two of the banks are chi- uh, that offer these are Chime and then hold on, what's the other one? I would say I really like Chime. It's a neo bank, which means that they technically work with other banks and they're kind of just an internet bank. There is a debit card now, one of these banks that has a, just a regular debit card you can use like a debit card, but it reports as a credit card to the credit bureaus. And the entire point, um, it's called Extra so it's extra.app um and that is a card that will report positive information to the credit bureaus but it's just a debit card um so that's another option for people the main thing is like you want to reduce the amount of negative information on your card and increase the positive information. Um, If you're in the situation where you're just trying to like get over that line of like, you want to get up above 720 and you're doing decently well, but you need to focus because you're maybe going to borrow money for a house and you want to get the lowest um, interest rate possible. In that case, what you would want to do is start to do some of the more, even more strategic things. Like I mentioned, like putting almost paying your card off, like, every week so that you uh, reduce the amount that is getting reported to the credit bureaus, lowering your utilization. Um, Asking for a credit limit increase If you ask for a credit limit increase, that counts as a inquiry for for credit. So you'll get a temporary ding, which will last 90 days. It's like a a 10 or a 15 point ding for new credit. Um, However, there is a sneaky way to get a credit limit increase. And this is my favorite tip. If you get a raise at work, Or for example, when you applied for your card, you were like straight out of college and making $20,000 a year. And now you're making $40,000 a year or $60,000 a year. All credit um, cards have an option for you to like, they have like a profile section and that'll include your salary. So if you're a good customer, you pay it off every month, um, make sure you go into that salary profile section and put whatever your current salary is. Do not lie. Do not make up a fake salary because that's how we got into the last financial crisis. But <laughs> um put what if you have a higher salary, update that section and then just kind of sit chill for like a week or two. Quite often it's it might not be as true right now because we're kind of in a credit tightening environment because of the cost of living crisis and and the interest rates. Um but they quite often they will extend they'll be like, "Oh, you've been a great customer." You're making more money now. Would you like to then go spend more money on your card? Um, So updating your salary can be kind of a sneaky way to do that because that won't count as an inquiry on your part to raise your credit limit.
0: Taking a break from the interview to mention our Patreon page. The perks of being a patron are that you get a private podcast feed with all bonus materials and early releases of each episode. I'd like to welcome our latest patron, Matthew Lablanca. Matt messaged me and said he in particular liked the episodes with Broadway producer Heather Shields and with Rye Myers, your Broadway and entertainment BFF. Find links to those shows in the show notes. Matt also mentioned that he appreciates the show because he thought for a long time that he was the only performer that contributed to a Roth IRA. He was glad to find other people in the industry are doing just that. Matthew, thank you for being a patron. If you're interested in helping me produce the show, I'd love to have you join up as a patron. Sign up at patreon.com slash artistic finance. And now back to the show.
1: Um, so Eileen asked us uh, that she's curious about uh, my comment that a score over 720 doesn't change much. Um, do you want to go? You want to dig into that a little bit? Yeah, it's it's pretty simple. So also, I will say we're referring to 800
3: credit score, which is a FICO score. There's actually three different scores and they're on three different ranges. So um, we're talking about a FICO score where like essentially the highest end of it is 850. But there's other scores that have higher ranges. But in all of them, if you have a score over around 720 to 750, you are in the best area. And the reason it doesn't matter, one, um, getting from uh, 300, which is essentially like as soon as you breathe, zero is like we don't know who you are. As soon as you're breathing, you get about a 300 under most of these systems. They're like, cool, you're alive. We Can you do you want to borrow money? Um, but you know, 300 is a real bad credit score, but as soon as you start building data, you'll get up into the 500s, usually the 600s. And then you start to like, you have to work a little harder to get up into that top range. Um, a th- An important thing to understand is it's a lot easier to move from a 300 to a 600 than it is to move from a 600 to a uh, 800. Like, It gets exponentially harder as you go up the scale. It's harder to move even from a 750 to an 800 than it is to move from a 680 to a 700. And that's because they, you know, they need more and more information about you as you go up. Um, there's no such thing as a perfect credit score because it is a snapshot in time. It isn't a trophy you win and put on a shelf and you never interact with again. Um, and because of that, the reason it doesn't matter if it's in that best range uh, of, which is above 720 under most of them um it you're going to get the best rates when you borrow money they're going to give you the lowest interest rates they're not they don't care if you have an 800 versus a 780 that does not matter to them it's all a range um so it's not important but sometimes it can be emotionally satisfying to get that 800 so <laughs> Carl asked a really good question that'll get us off credit. Carl said, I really appreciated honesty in the line. I'm just going to walk you through the same basic principles that every other personal finance book teaches, but I'm going to add some cats. Many of the personal finance book I've seen lure you in with secrets, tricks, hacks, etc. What I've personally found most helpful is the angle the author approaches the content from, in this case, cats. I'm curious if Lillian could share a bit about the background that inspired the writing of the book and why cats. (laughs) Uh, it's a great question. Um, so I originally wrote this book because I found that like, I, I've had a lot of weird jobs. I lived in a tree. I was a full-time live-in social worker living in voluntary poverty. Um, you know, I was a vegetarian kitchen manager on a hippie commune. Like I've just been all over there with my jobs, but I never earned a lot of money, but I was always a nerd about this stuff. And it was really frustrating to me how I, I read every book in the darn library about personal finance and um, I have an economics degree. I, I, found it's still very challenging to find stuff about personal finance that applied to my situation. They all were sort of like, save 10% in your 401k for your 2.5 kids with a white picket fence. And I was like, I don't have a 401k. So I, it just felt like it was really challenging to find stuff that spoke to my experience. So I wanted to make something that would help people, even if they don't work a traditional white collar job, um, because we all have to deal with money. Like we, there's no one that gets to escape living with money. I do know a dude who lives in a wood tending a compost pile. He used to be a stockbroker in the city in London. And then he moved to Oregon and moved to the woods and lived without money, just taking care of a compost pile, but he still interacts with society. Um, and I think it's, Important to like understand where these skills are, and not make the assumption that someone is operating from within this very narrow. I mean, very few of our careers are like that anymore. And I feel like a lot of the finance device uh, advice is sort of like get a job when you're 22 and then work at that company for 25 years and save money, and also college. uh, It's fine; you'll be able to afford it for your kids. Um, so, and the reason I used cats is just that, I don't know, cats are fun. Um, I think this stuff is really scary. Like I talked about in the first chapter, we we've all, we've all got baggage about money. We all received both explicit and implicit messages about money growing up, um, from whatever environment we were growing up in. And, Uh, That baggage can really affect especially artistic people, especially creative people who have internalized the starving artist idea or the idea that, um, you know, something I really had to unlearn was the idea that um, I was a sellout. If I was able to take care of myself financially, you know, like in all of these punk rock communities and also living in voluntary poverty with the the worker movement that I was part of, there was this idea that, like, if you took care of yourself, then you were you were bougie, and therefore, like you couldn't help people. Um, and I had to unlearn that belief because for me, it was very much an inherent belief. And um, it can be really hard to want to engage with finance if you're carrying around that budget that that baggage. And so, for me, I really wanted to do something fun to make it a little easier. Um, also, cat puns are really easy to write. I discovered. Everybody keeps asking when there's going to be a dog version of the book. So maybe someday I'll rewrite that right now. I'm writing a book on the uh, a, a graphic. I'm co-writing a graphic novel on the American um, how to navigate the American health um care system. Uh, and uh, it's the most depressing thing I've ever written. And it's still it's a comic book and it's still the most depressing thing I've ever written. So
1: I also uh, had to unlearn a lot of the same narratives that you had. The whole idea of being a sellout for making money and being a creative and, and all of those things. So there's just, there's a lot of mythology, depending on how you were raised and, and what you, what you were taught to believe. But yeah, it really does come down to self-care and taking care of yourself. I, my awakening was, I can't help anyone else. I can't even help myself. Um, And I had to change my mindset around money. Um, But I want to know, do you specifically know all 43 cats in this book? Do you personally know these cats?
3: <laughs> I so the first the first printing of this book, we're now on the third printing of the book, but the first printing of the book was crowdfunded. And so um when we did the Kickstarter, one of the perks was that you could send your cat in. Um, So in the back, there's actually an index of the cats that tells you what page they're on and what their like favorite activities are and what their names are. So all of those cats, they're not ones I personally know, but I I got pictures of all of them and little bios about them and then uh, got to send them to the illustrator. And I also I used their personalities to help determine which chapter they were going to be in. I asked like would they like to invest? Would they be a savings cat? Um so yes. Uh I don't personally know them, but I feel like I do know.
1: They they really came across as as very real and tangible tangible cats. So <laughs> which made it very fun. Mostly
3: credits to my illustrator Fiona Wu. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Shout out Fiona. Uh, Suzanne said, what really resonated with me was your emphasis early on about making your budget really reflect your values. That was incredibly eye-opening for us when looking at our budget.
3: I think it's the most, I am, believe it or not, not a very hippy-dippy in touch with my feelings kind of person. But I learned when I started teaching this finance stuff, if you don't talk about values, it won't be successful. Because a lot of us have this idea that um, being good with money is an innate trait. It is not. It is a thing you have to learn. Like literally no one comes out of the womb knowing what a Roth IRA is. And the values are really important. But the other thing I want to emphasize, especially if you are artistically minded and maybe We're part of, you know, the punk starving artist community, the theater community. It is important to understand it's okay if your values change. They are not fixed in time like my, you know, 36 year old self might. Um, be heavily judged by my 20 year old self um, for how she spends her money. But I check in and I reassess with myself. And one of my core values that I use to guide my budget is whimsy. Um, You know, it doesn't have to be whatever you would see on the break room at your like corporate job as like our values, are customers, leadership, you know, it like values just are about like money at its essence, is an exchange of value. Um, and so you just have to think about what are the values I'm exchanging for this.
1: Yeah. And, and it's it's really a, a crucial strategy too, and just uh, widening the gap between saving and spending. Because if we're mindlessly spending on things that we don't really care about, and we have a closet full of clothes, but we're not really that into clothes, you know, you could be saving some money on your thing, expenditures to put towards travel or books or whatever it is that's your thing. And so by by taking a closer look and identifying what really resonates with you, particularly, uh, it, it helps you to find those. Sometimes people can really feel like, well, I don't make enough to save. But when you really start to analyze your spending and, and where am I putting money where it doesn't have a, a valuable meaning to me, then that, that can make a huge difference.
3: I agree. I think a lot of us spend on things that we think we need, and then we kind of step back and we go like, but I'm telling myself this story that I can't afford this, be it savings, that I can't afford travel when I claim that that's part of my core values. But then I'm going and I'm I'm dropping like $500 every week on Trader Joe's on like cute snacks. So, you know, a- assessing how that is. Um, I saw a question about savings on a low income. <laughs> Ethan says our baby is going to come out of the womb knowing about Roth IRAs. <laughs> <laughs> uh I like that but I will say it takes a it takes a while to sink in and they can't even use the Roth IRA until they have earned income so unless they are like twins and they end up being in product like television productions out of the womb they won't have any earned income to save
0: in so all right they're going to be a baby model like one weekend, they're going to be baby models for like medical textbooks or something. I I don't know. I'm working on the strategy for how to get them into the Roth IRA (laughs) in the first year.
1: (laughs) So the um, the question about the low income and savings was uh, in earlier in the book, you said that you, uh, when you first started out, you were making $800 a month, but you still managed to save $50 a month towards your IRA, I believe is what it said. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think people think they need to have a certain high, uh, a high level, income before they can start saving for their retirement. So can you talk about that a bit?
3: Yeah, I think that the compound interest is really powerful, which I know at literally every financial person says, but it's true. Einstein called it the eighth wonder of the world. And I think there's a lot of people that tell themselves this story that later I'll be making more money and then I'll start to get my retirement savings. That's a a future me problem. Um, But in fact, if even smaller amounts done earlier can make a huge difference, and if they are invested, because they will get those little compound interest bunnies. Um, and investing for the long term is also a lot less stressful than investing for the short term. If you need a get rich quick uh, high return on your money, you are put you are taking on a lot of risk. But if you need to get a return on your money in thirty years, it's a lot easier to invest a small amount and not to carry on quite as much risk. That's like the financial advisor hat on of like, yes, I, I the, the math works out. But from the emotional side, I think that's what's really like more important. And here's here's what I will say about prioritizing savings, whatever amount it might be. It, it could be one percent of your income, like just start small. Um, when you turn 18, it seems like all of a sudden you're an adult and then you owe everyone money. Like, I swear, they just start knocking on the door and handing you bills the second you're an adult. And everyone else wants a piece of your money. You might as well treat yourself like a bill the same way that you treat all of these faceless corporations you have to pay for everything else in your life. And no one else is going to save for you. Unless you are extremely lucky to work a job that still has a proper defined benefit plan pension, which is a dying breed, like no one else is going to save for you. So if, you are prioritizing all these other people that claim that you need to pay them money for whatever it might be, but you're not prioritizing yourself. What does that say about how you want to take care of your future self? And I'm not necessarily saying you have to be aiming for financial independence where you're saving 50% of your income. But even if you just treat yourself like a bill at the beginning of the month and say, this is a non-negotiable, I'm paying myself before I pay out everybody else. It becomes a lot easier because it's it becomes a rote habit. Like it's a, it, you just treat it like a non-negotiable. Um so I'm a big fan of that. I could get into some of the more specifics about why small amounts on a regular basis are can be really great for investing. It's called dollar cost averaging, but I don't think we have time to get into that, but just know Investing on a regular basis for your retirement um, can make a huge difference. And I will also say if you're in the U.S. and you are low income and you are saving for retirement, we have this really cool thing called the Saver's Credit that will pay you money to save for retirement if you actually prioritize and put money towards retirement if you're low income. It's only for um quite low income people. You're, um As a single person, your income would need to be below, I believe, $30,000 a year. Um, but the Saver's Credit is really amazing. Um, uh, if you are curious to learn more about it and you are low income, um, the best place to go in uh would be to get tax help from VITA, which is um, also called Tax Aid. It's the largest volunteer program in the country. Trained volunteers will help you prepare for your taxes. It's specifically for people with incomes over under about $60,000 a year, but they will help you get all of the stuff you're entitled to, um, including the Savers credit.
1: Yeah, that was a really great section of your book that that's the first time I had heard of that. So that was pretty amazing. And, you know, again, one of those tools that you wish you knew about earlier, but I think for compound interest and dollar cost averaging and all those details, we don't have time to get into, I would say you summarize it perfectly in your book when you call it money babies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like your money just keeps making money and they're little money babies. I love that. <laughs> that's, the, that's the most technical definition I can give. Really? <laughs> it's very technical. <laughs> very good. Yeah. And also we will have all of these resources on artisticfinance.com, com, And of course on Lillian's website, is it ohmydollar.com?
3: uh com. i will also say we have a really um this is actually this is a fantastic community for people we also have a really large diverse forum of people from all over the world at com. and we do regular savings challenges you can participate in them we, we're doing a food budget challenge right now called snackuary once you participate in them i will ship you a free cat sticker anywhere in the world um so uh there's always little themed ones we do one called budgetober with lots of halloween themed cat stickers So it's a great place if you're really intimidated by this and you want a little bit of a supportive community.
1: That is awesome. I love that. Um, Well, I hate to wrap it up here, but we are out of time. Thank you for everyone's Q&A. Thank you for um, all of the participants and everyone for joining, especially to our host, Claudia, for uh, presenting the book, as well as Lillian. Thank you so much for being here. This was an incredible discussion, and uh, we will continue to promote the book and the website. Just so many great resources and so many great cats. So thank you, everyone.
3: (laughs) If anybody has any questions after this or they're just like worried about their student loans at 3 a.m., they can always send them to questions at ohmydollar.com, and I can answer them on the show. Um, So questions at ohmydollar.com. I will answer your questions
0: um all right yeah everybody thank you so much lillian thank you so much claudia thanks so much um this is amazing um i do want to say that we have carl faber here as well and carl is important how do i spotlight carl here add spotlight there's carl <laughs> um so carl is presenting next month's book which is going to be you are a badass at making money by jen sincero um anyway so you'll see carl next next time Um, And hopefully we'll see everybody else next time as well. Um, And yeah, that's that's all I have. Hopefully we'll see everybody next week. And yeah, we're all going to hang out here or some of us are going to hang out here.
3: Great. Thank you all for having me. And uh, thank you for. Uh, thank you for presenting the book,
2: Claudia. Loved it. Honestly, it, it, it just gave me so much to think about in terms of, you know, not having to wait until you're making a certain amount to, you know, invest and save. So I, I really loved it. So thank you for, thank you for writing it.
3: Thanks. Yeah. Well, my next book hopefully won't apply to you about uh, how to navigate American health insurance.
0: So hopefully not.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I I pray for your
0: sake. It doesn't. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode. Thank you to everyone who attended. Now, if you want to get the Zoom link for next month, please sign up for the Book Club newsletter. We'll send two emails a month, one with details about the meeting and another as a reminder. To sign up, go to artisticfinance.com and click on the Book Club tab. Now, what we've all been waiting for, who is getting the attendance prices, So we have two sets we're giving out. Now the first is going to Claudia for being an amazing presenter. The other set is going to Suzanne for being the most involved in the chat box. So congratulations, Claudia and Suzanne. I'll reach out to get your shipping information and you'll be getting a t-shirt, a coffee mug and a stress ball from Spark Lighting. Thank you, Matt Cooper, for sponsoring the prizes this month. If you want to hear more from Matt you can check out episode 128 where we discuss finances in relation to themed entertainment lighting. If you want to hear the early release of next week's episode, which is the second part of the discussion with Broadway costume designer Greg Barnes, that is available by becoming a patron. There's a link to our Patreon page in the show notes or on our website. Thank you again to everyone who attended the book club. I can't wait for the next one. Thank you to Utopia Dreamscape and Amy Deluxe for bringing this book club to fruition. Check out all their goings on at utopiadreamscape.com. Thank you to Lillian for joining us and to Claudia for presenting. After the book club wrapped up, Carl Faber stayed on the line and we chatted for a bit. He had some good thoughts on the book and I've included them after the outro music. So if you want to hear those from Carl Faber, stick around. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg.
1: Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.
4: That was great. It's a really good first, but I think from my perspective, I think it's like a really good first book to start this journey because it's like, it's really accessible. Like it's very like walking, like, like she sort of says, like you're walking through the basics, but just with cats, like to me, that was like a sort of acknowledgement that like for a lot of people, your journey down personal finance is going to involve like a lot of books and you're probably going to read them a lot of times. And so like, to me, like what's what differentiates all these different books I'm encountering that reading badass is like what differentiates the the different books is not like the logistics of like, you can contribute this much to your Roth IRA. You can do this, you can do that. It's really just like the angle that the author uses to talk about like the material, you know, it's like the material is essentially the same. And it's like weird, like, it's weird terminology. It's weird vocabulary. It's a bit like, to me, it's like, as I was reading it, I was like, it's a little bit like Shakespeare, you know, it's like, we've all seen like billion, you know, a hundred productions of Macbeth, but like, you know, the, the advantage of like seeing like a Macbeth on the moon and a Macbeth, like, you know, uh, in the future and a Macbeth in the wild West is like, every time you see that you're finding a new way into the material. And so to me, it's like, that's what I found like really fascinating about like using cats. Like I, to me personally, like cats don't really resonate that much with me, but I was like really interested in the book because like there was this other avenue in and like you're a badass with at making money kind of has like a, a different angle, you know, and so like they're all it's like the same concepts, but just like different avenues into the material, you know.
0: And I liked her because uh, it's like they're, they're not theater people, but it's still that sort of like hippie, whatever, like people without nine to fives.
4: Yeah. Creative types. Yeah. I mean, that's what I think that's what's really valuable about the the credit score conversation and about like, you know, the 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 different avenues for applying for like, you know, for for getting approved on a mortgage when you're when when you make half or the bulk of your money on 1099, like you're going to encounter a lot of difficulties getting to getting access to that. A lot of normal personal finance books won't really dive into that because. For a lot of people who are in the finance industry or who are in like you know just one job with a W two and making a certain amount of money, th- those concerns don't you know. As artists, we have different we have unique um, unique challenges, and I think like the book really goes into that, which is helpful. We've we, I I didn't ask about the worksheet question. That was like the one hang up that I had trouble with in reading the ebook. Is like I wanted there to be a link to like a Google doc with those spreadsheets so that I could like fill them out. Cause I was like trying to do it in note, like, you know, I was reading this on like Apple books. And so I was like trying to fill out the worksheets b- using like notes and comments. And it's just like, ugh, it, was sl- it was not Yeah. That was successful. good for you.
0: Cause I didn't even try. I was, well, I, was,
4: I, I tried at the very beginning and then I was like, I'm not going to be able to do it. But I think like that I, I was curious, maybe I'll send her an email and see if a Yeah, like I was going to say if
0: you don't, I'm going to send the question to OMyDollar.com and ask.
4: Yeah, I mean, I figured it probably was and I just didn't know like where to go, but like all those graphics are so awesome and the spreadsheets are so great that like to me it's like make those make those like e-fillable or something like that or make them a Google Doc so that people can just follow along and I don't know. To me that would be like a next level ebook. Interaction.
0: Oh yeah, Carl. That's going to be my first question for badass. Is back. Okay. So first off, did you ask uh, Lillian about the worksheets? So <laughs> I, I will. I will keep you accountable on sending that question because you already have the question because you asked me. So you can just copy and paste it. The
4: other thing. The other question I had. I had for them that I didn't. I didn't ask. At one point in the book, they say like um, I was making like 17k a year or something. There, the the line specifically. It was something about making 17k a year, and I was like how do you live in portland and make se- and and like afford any like yeah, i don't to me it was just sort of like like between rent utilities food everything like that like there's got to be a level of discipline that she must have when it comes to spending you know it's like there's one there's one side of this that's budgeting which i totally get and sh- and they go into some great detail there but like um be, I, I don't know how you live in portland on that <laughs> budget <laughs>